Good morning, College Park. Our scripture reading from this, for this morning will be coming from the New Testament, and the book is the book of Luke, the 10th chapter, verses 25 through 37. Again, the book of Luke, Luke, the 10th chapter, verses 25 through 37. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we ask for your presence now by the Holy Spirit so that the name of Jesus might be exalted in all of our lives and might be spread from this place and from the campus at Fishers into the marketplace, into schools, into homes, into neighborhoods, and that the glory of Christ might be received and that he might be believed in for the salvation of sinners and for the magnification of your name in all the earth. So give us a vision today of what that looks like and what our role is in that endeavor. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. There's a particular equation that I want to talk with you about this morning that relates to both how we live and where we live. And that equation looks something like this. Proximity equals both opportunity and responsibility. In other words, where you live, where you work, has opportunities connected to it, and there's also gospel responsibility connected to it. This equation is important this morning, on this Sunday, as we've launched into the Fishers neighborhood, where now there are 86,000 more people that have College Park Church in more closer proximity to them than what they did a week ago. It's an exciting day. And uh, the effect of that will be that um, 
Our people will be able, having been launched from here, to reach their neighbors in a way that they would not have been able to reach them before. But the other reason why this is important is this is the time of year when proximity in our lives changes. I don't know what your world is like, but we're looking at what do we sign up for in the fall, what kind of classes are our kids gonna take. There's a whole host of things that begin in the month of August with new schools for some of you, new classes for some of you, new neighbors perhaps, folks that have moved in. You only have a few months until people begin hibernating again, don't come out of their houses for six months. We have new church activities. I'm sure you're getting emails and deciding what are our kids gonna be involved in, new sporting activities, extracurricular sort of things. Maybe you even have some new relationships that you've connected with or met over this summer. The fact of the matter is all these things create new proximities in our lives. And so it's an important, I think, moment for us to just pause before we just rush into the coming fall season and think, now, why is God providing all of these things to me? Because proximity does create new opportunity. And proximity does create responsibility. That's the reason why we birthed what we've called the next door mission. The idea simply was to not just plant a campus in Fishers. That's just the tip of the iceberg in terms of what our vision is. Our vision is actually for the entire Indianapolis metro area and also for the long-term health of our church family. So the next door mission has two components to it. One, let's figure out how do we change the spiritual culture of the city of Indianapolis through planning campuses that will eventually become healthy churches, and not just in Fishers, but in other communities. So we're beginning to pray about, okay, so we did it in Fishers, so what's next? And as well, by also trying to figure out how can we as a church mobilize one another for multiplication so that we become a people who are not convinced that this church is a cruise ship, but rather that we're a battleship. What happens over time is that we have all these wonderful programs which are for our spiritual benefit and for our health, and it it can often happen that you begin to think this church exists to serve you so you can just grow more in your understanding of who God is and more in in terms of what the Bible communicates, and while there's nothing inherently wrong with that, if that's the only thing that you do, you've missed the mission where Jesus called us to go and make disciples. And so after we completed this building, Our pastors and elders began discussing, what do we do to help avoid this cruise ship sort of mentality? How do we help us as a church grow spiritually deeper? We wanted to fulfill the calling of Colossians 1.28, which is to present everyone mature in Christ. And so the Lord, I think, led us to develop this strategy of reaching our city with the gospel by mobilizing us as a church towards multiplication because we believe that if we're mobilized towards multiplication, if we're talking about evangelism and discipleship, that those two subjects, more than anything else, keep the edge sharp on a person's Christian life. In other words, when you're sharing the gospel with people, when you're concerned about how to disciple people in a personal way, and people are asking you questions about what you believe, you bring that back into your small groups. You begin to pray differently. You begin to read the Bible differently. You share Christ with somebody and they ask you, well, how do you even know the Bible is true? That's when you send me or one of our staff an email, like, hey, how do we even know the Bible is true? And then you start digging, right? And you start figuring things out. And you might not have that question if everyone's a believer around you. So we called this strategy our next door mission because we wanted to locate campuses in greater proximity to where our people live. We saw a connection that as people moved further and further away from 96th in town, what we're calling now our North Indy campus, their engagement in small groups, their, even their motivation to invite their neighbors decreased. 
Me, invite your neighbor, hey, come to church with me. Well, how far is it away? Oh, it's like 40 minutes. Why do you go 40 minutes to church? Well, that's a long story. But, so we put a closer proximity to people. It changes the conversation. We developed a video that we showed you um, a number of months ago. Let me just uh, show it to you again. This captures, I think, really well the essence of our At College heart. Park Church, our mission is simple. We are a church that exists to ignite a passion to follow Jesus. Over our 30-year history, God has been faithful to grow his church and use us to take the gospel from our campus in northern Indianapolis to the underserved in our city and the unreached in the world. But what do we do about the one million people in the Indianapolis area who have no affiliation to a church? What about our neighbors next door? How can we become a church full of people on mission, a mission to go next door? As we have prayed for what is next for our church, we feel led to take College Park next door. We pray the prayer of Colossians 4.3, that God may open to us a door for the word, to declare the mystery of Christ. As we follow the leading of the Holy Spirit, we believe that a strategy of launching new campuses full of missional people reaching their next door neighbors across the city is part of God's design to reach Indianapolis and the world. We believe that starting campuses in the city will help the people in our body invite their neighbors, connect in more meaningful ways, and motivate all of us to live out our external mission. These local campuses with the same mission, core values, theology, and leadership of College Park will allow us to continue to grow wide as well as deep and take the gospel throughout our city. And as we look to the future, our long-term vision is for a family of new and healthy churches to be birthed through this next door focus to reach our city for Christ. How do you fit in? The North, East, South, West, and downtown regions around the circle of Indianapolis are all unique parts of our city with unique people, cultures, and opportunities. As we start College Park next door, we hope you consider engaging at a campus near you, inviting your next door neighbors, and getting involved in our mission. Join us as we pray and ask that God would open your next door for the gospel, grow healthy churches around the city, and multiply passionate followers of Jesus on and to the nations. So for years, our church has been passionate about reaching unreached peoples, and that's not changing. For a number of years, we've been focused on reaching underserved people in the Brookside neighborhood, and that isn't changing as well. But we wanted to add this third piece into the mix of trying to reach unchurched people in the city of Indianapolis because 60% of people within the metro Indy area do not affiliate with a Christian church, and that's using the word Christian very, very generously. In other words, even though this is a wonderful community to live, the fact of the matter is people you work with, people in your neighborhoods, are not followers of Jesus, and they may be nice, they may be hospitable, they may have sort of Midwest sort of values, but the fact of the matter is if they don't know Jesus, they're lost. And the question is, what do we do about that? What do we do about the fact that God has placed us in this city in this particular moment in history and what is our responsibility to reach into the core areas of our city and to, to reach right next door into the neighborhoods that God has planted us? You, you might think, well, India doesn't feel all that unchurched or it doesn't feel like it's a, a, a mission field. And let me just give you a visual image. I showed this a number of times, but I just wanna keep coming back to this. This is the traffic cam on 465 and Ditch Road on a traditional, just standard Monday morning. And then this is the image on Sunday morning. Let me go back. That's Monday morning, and that's Sunday morning. You get the point. I mean, it was easy coming to church today, right? It took you probably half as long as what it would normally take, 
and that's a tragedy. There are thousands and thousands of people today who are staying at home thinking that Sundays are basically just simply a day to catch up on what's going on in the world and rest and go to some soccer games with their kids and stuff like that, and they're missing the beautiful reality of what it means to have a relationship with Jesus. So our prayer was to set campuses that would mobilize us as an entire church to take the gospel next door. And I'll tell you, it's been a wonderful journey for us, and we still have a long ways to go, but let me just share with you a few highlights of things that I see and things that I'm thrilled with. First and foremost, right now, at Fall Creek Intermediate School, we have over 300 people who are meeting to worship and are conducting themselves in this campus as a wonderful group, a body of believers. 300 people from this congregation were sent out and embraced that calling. Do you know what the median-sized church in America is today? 75. And do you know, you know what percentage of church plants fail? Over 50%. So by sending 300 people and by putting it in the context of a, of a healthy church like this one with support and all of the things that go along with that, we've set up 300 people in the Fishers area to actually be larger than most churches in the United States already. And that healthy, vibrant group of people are gonna to continue to grow. As well, because of this movement and talking about how to be able to reach our neighbors, our pastors and elders have talked more about evangelism, replication, discipleship, and shepherding since I've been here. We've talked more about those subjects in the last two years than we have, I think, in the entire seven years that I've been here. There's a buzz around our congregation about what it means to live intentionally and on mission. As well, talking about this has increased our conversations with other churches in the city. specifically inside the 465 Beltway, we're investigating relationships and beginning to form a new relationship with church planting movements inside the 465 Beltway. In particular, you'll be hearing more about a relationship, a partnership that we're developing with Soma Church, and we recently sent Joseph Ray and his wife Allison, uh, who was a pastoral resident here, we sent them to be a part of the church planting team that's planting a church in the Fountain Square area through Soma Church. And in a couple weeks, we'll celebrate the 30th anniversary of our church. September 27th, we're gonna have a wonderful time. You don't wanna miss that Sunday. It's gonna be a great event. And a part of that celebration is we're actually gonna take an offering as a church for another church in our community. We wanna, in fact, say God has blessed us, and therefore we wanna be able to bless you and to support what God is doing in the um, Indianapolis metro area. And then through all of this, you know, God has really sanctified us, sanctified our staff. This is not an easy enterprise. It's like giving birth to a baby. It's pretty when it's done, but it's painful. At least I've heard, you know, so I don't want to be like, yeah, I know. I mean, so I watched, and I was like, that looks like it hurts. So anyways, this was hard and painful, and yet at the same time, there's something beautiful about the birth of this new campus, something that God has really used in all of our lives, I think, to make us a better church. All of that to say, church proximity creates opportunity, and with that opportunity, there also comes responsibility. And so, I wanna go to Luke 10, I want to frame the discussion about the parable of the Good Samaritan, that as we think about what it means to launch a new campus, what it means to have a new school year that's starting, another season of life that's starting, I want you to think with me about what your role is in this idea of gospel proximity. So the first thing we want to think about is this. So who is your neighbor? 
We're in Luke 10. It's the parable of the Good Samaritan. Even if you're not a follower of Jesus and someone invited you here and you know very little about the rest of the Bible, you know about the story of the Good Samaritan. At least you know the concept. I mean, if you were to do a Google search on news stories regarding Good Samaritans, you'd you'd see lots of examples. For instance, last week there was a guy in Arizona who was a Good Samaritan because he pulled off to the side of the road and he helped a state trooper who was in a battle with a, a, a guy he was trying to arrest and the Good Samaritan stopped and helped him. Or a woman in Oklahoma City who Um, saw an accident and she pulled a mom who was unconscious and her kids out of the car. So even if you don't know what the Bible's about, you know what the Good Samaritan concept is. But the thing is that Jesus told the story of the Good Samaritan for a very specific reason, and it's not just about doing good deeds. There's actually something more foundational to it than that. The story of the Good Samaritan is actually how easy it is to miss what the essence of true righteousness is all about. In other words, the story of the Good Samaritan is about how the gospel, the good news that can transform people's lives, should reflect in the way in which people live, and yet sometimes the people who claim to really get it actually don't. And so the Good Samaritan is kind of an in-your-face sort of story, especially if um, you've grown up in church and you're accustomed to sort of Christian ideas and Christian concepts. So there's a context to this parable that we need to note. It's in the middle of some very interesting verses. Luke 10 actually begins with the deployment of 72 disciples, and they come back all thrilled because of what um, God does in and through them in uh, uh, verses 21 through 24, and yet Jesus warns them not to be so excited about these powers that they've been given, as they are should be excited, about having their names written in heaven. As well, there's some warnings to cities like Chorazin and Bethsaida because of their lack of repentance. And then if you look at verse 21, that's really the key verse for understanding the parable of the Good Samaritan, for it says this, in that same hour he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to your little children. So what Jesus is doing here is he's demonstrating that there are times when people who you would think were wise and understanding, or even people that you think would be the most spiritual, sometimes completely miss it. Even though something is like right in front of them and should be like so obvious, like, like this is apparent that you should do this, there's sometimes that those people just completely miss the essence of what they really should do. And so the parable of the Good Samaritan is set in that particular context. It's not just a story about doing good deeds. On the contrary, it's about how religious people can sometimes miss the essence of what they actually really believe. It's not just about helping hurting people, it's about being spiritually blind to what should be obvious. It's right in front of you, or in this context for this morning's sermon, They're right next door. What's the setting? In verse 25, it says, Behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test. Now, the word lawyer here can also be rendered as a scribe. Don't think of it just as a lawyer, but Jesus is in the middle of some teaching, apparently, and this lawyer stands up, and he asks a question, but the question is not, coming from a heart where he really wants an answer. He's doing this to try and trap Jesus. 
As a lawyer slash scribe, he would have been well-trained in the Old Testament law. His role was probably to help the Sanhedrin, the ruling body of Israel. 72 members belonged to that ruling body, and they had to give, they were, so they're like the Supreme Court and the Congress all in one. And they had to make final decisions regarding governance and obedience and so what really constitutes faithfulness to God's law? And so the Sanhedrin had a group of scribes or lawyers around them in order to give them input and to give them counsel. So when this man asks a question, he, he's not asking because he's curious. He's asking with an agenda. The question he asks him is, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? This would have not been an uncommon question. Rich young ruler asked it in Luke 18. It's a good question, one that most Jews who had a religious bent would have been curious about. And yet this man asks the question not from a broken heart, he asks rather because he wants to justify himself, he asks out of his pride. And Jesus knows this. He must know he's a scribe. Usually scribes wore fancy clothes. They wore scribe-like clothes so people knew, oh, so you're a scribe, and they loved to be identified as such. Jesus then says to him, verse 26, what is written in the law? Notice he answers his question with a question. How do you read it? So Jesus is putting him now on trial or testing him. Verse 27, the lawyer scribe answers, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. So he actually answered correctly, quoted from Deuteronomy 6.5 and Leviticus 19.18. This was the accepted summary of the law. In other words, if you want to boil everything down that the Bible teaches in the Old Testament, essentially, is love God and love your neighbor. That expression was the height of obedience, and it was the height of righteousness. And therefore, verse 28, Jesus says to him, you have answered correctly. And then he says something interesting. Do this, and you will live. Now, why did he say that? I mean, did he really mean that? Is Jesus purporting some sort of works righteousness? Did he really mean that? Well, the answer is both yes and no. Yes, he meant that if a person could literally fulfill loving God and loving others, then they would be declared to be righteous, theoretically. But Jesus also knows the conditions of of man's heart, and he knows this man could never fulfill that. And so what he's actually doing is not showing him a new path towards conversion or how he might be saved. Rather, what Jesus is doing is seeking to expose this man's self-righteousness by breaking him over his lack of obedience. And so what Jesus is doing is setting up an an impossible standard so that the man will see that his self-trusting righteousness is not going to work. He wants him to know that he's missing something. Conversation, however, isn't over. Verse 29. But he, this is the lawyer, scribe, desiring to justify himself. So when Jesus answered that, he wanted to push back, sort of like, well, wait a minute, wanting to figure out, so what do you really mean by that? And how does that really relate to who I am and what I've done? So he's, he's, he's pushing back, seeking to justify himself. He then asked this question, and who is my neighbor? I could imagine the scene, something like this, that Jesus said, you've answered well, do this and live, starts to move on, and the man then pops out another question. Oh, oh, who's my neighbor? Would have loved to see the look on Jesus' face in this moment. 
He turns. Imagine Jesus looking at the man. And then he says this. This is the parable. It's the Good Samaritan. So this whole setup now has come to the point where Jesus is gonna tell the man a story. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Notice, a man, no description regarding race or rank or station in life. He's going on the path of um, Jerusalem to Jericho. Uh, By the way, that's about the distance between Fishers to Indianapolis. So notice the theme today, so. (laughs) 17 miles is the distance. In his journey, this man is beaten, he's stripped bare, and he's laid half dead. He fell among robbers who stripped him, beat him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, the scene dramatically changes in verse 31. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road. Now, while as this man was completely nondescript, we're going to see very clear categories of people that Jesus uses in order to push against the categories in the, the man's mind regarding who is his neighbor. See, the problem in the lawyer's mind is this. He's not asking who is his neighbor in order to know who he might love, like his heart would be bleeding for someone else. Rather, he wants to know who qualifies as his neighbor. His question assumes, who is my neighbor? It assumes that Certain people need to qualify as his neighbors before they are treated as his neighbors. So he's not asking what he can do to love his neighbors. Rather, he's asking who is really worthy of his love. He set himself up, and therefore Jesus is telling this story. It's a priest who's going down that road. A priest was intimately involved in the spiritual life of temple worship. He would have been a descendant of Aaron. His life would have been given to sacrifices, the maintenance of the temple. And he especially would have given himself to purification. By virtue of their role, the priests would have been involved in everything connected to the worship of the one true God. And yet, when he sees this injured man, On the road, what does he do? He crosses the road and he passes by on the other side. Verse 31, by chance a priest was going down the road, he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Now we don't know exactly why he did this. Jesus doesn't supply the motivation for his lack of concern. Some commentators suggest that he may have been concerned about purification rites. Others suggest that he may have been concerned about his own safety. We don't know why he passes by on the other side. All we know is this, that there's a religious leader who's involved in the regular worship of the one true God, and when faced with someone who he could help, walked to the other side of the road. The priest clearly did not think that a half-dead man was his neighbor. The second person in the story is a Levite, verse 32. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. So Jesus adds another person into the mix, another category. First it was a priest, now it's a Levite. A Levite is a broader term to describe the descendants of the tribe of Levi, and they were the ones who assisted the priests. Whereas the priests did the actual ministry related to the sacrifices, the Levites were the ones who assisted 
In, in the um, tabernacle time period, they were the ones who carried the furniture, they were the ones who maintained the curtains, they erected the frames of the temporary structure called the tabernacle, but in temple times, they carried on various duties as assistants. So likewise, verse 32, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side. So we have these two men, a priest and a Levite, they're involved in what's supposed to be true spirituality, and they walk on the other side of the road when a man is clearly in need. Now at this moment, the crowd must have been waiting for a hero. Jesus has built the story to its tension point. They're, they're wondering, no doubt, who is gonna come in and where is the story going to go? What are they waiting for? Maybe a common Jewish man? Maybe Maybe a scribe, maybe the lawyer thinks, oh, I know what's happening. A lawyer's gonna come down the road. A woman, a child, no one anticipated what came next. Verse 33, when Jesus says, but a Samaritan, oh, I would have loved, I hope there's instant replay in heaven. I wanna, <laughs> I wanna dial that one back and I wanna be able to zoom in and I wanna see, the mo I wanna see people's faces when Jesus says something like, but a Samaritan, because my guess is they probably gasped. A Samaritan? You probably could have cut the tension with a knife in that moment. A Samaritan is gonna be the hero? Now this would have been problematic because nobody would have thought as the Samaritan as a neighbor in the first place, let alone a good neighbor. Samaritans had a long history with the Jewish people dating way back even 700 years prior to the birth of Christ when the Assyrians had conquered Samaria. They had repopulated that area with people who were non-Jewish and those non-Jewish people intermarried with Jews and their children were considered half-breeds and they were given the name of Samaritans. So they were viewed as less than legitimate people. And then when Israel was sacked and they went to Babylon, after they returned and began building the temple, the Samaritans offered to help the Jews, and the Jews refused their help. And as a result, there was animosity and infighting. In fact, so much so that the Samaritans built their own temple at Mount Gerizim. And that's in John 4, when Jesus meets the woman at the well, and she asks on which mountain they're supposed to worship. What's central to her question as a Samaritan woman is, where does God really dwell? Does he dwell in Jerusalem, or does he dwell in Mount Gerizim? Because the people had been split, and they didn't like each other, and they thought they were, they were less people. The Samaritans thought that of the Jews, and the Jews thought that of the Samaritans. So these people were at, and, and were at complete animosity against each other, and they both thought they were superior than the others. For, so for the Samaritan to be the hero is scandalous. And that's Jesus' point. Notice what he does. Verse 33, the Samaritan, as he journeys, he came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. Notice, he has compassion. No one else in the story does. The priest doesn't. The Levite doesn't. He had compassion. Verse 33, verse 34, he, he bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. He then set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And next, verse 35, the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. I mean, that's really generous. I mean, probably you or me would have done this. Hey, take care of him, not to exceed $250, right? I mean, this guy's like, no, whatever it costs. 
take care of him. So there's personal risk involved. He took ownership. He says, I will repay you when I come back. So notice how different the Samaritan's response was in comparison to not just people in the story, no, in comparison to religious leaders. The priest and the Levite feel no compassion. They, they moved away from the man. They failed to do anything. And the man wasn't even viewed as a neighbor. And yet here comes a man who would have never been viewed as a neighbor, a Samaritan, and he actually becomes the good neighbor. And as Jesus completes the story, he then turns and asks a question of the lawyer. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Verse 37, and he said, this is the lawyer, the one who showed him mercy. Notice he won't even say the Samaritan. The one, the guy. The guy who showed him mercy. And Jesus then says to the lawyer, you go and do likewise. So Jesus doesn't even talk to the lawyer about how to have his sins really forgiven or what the essence of true righteousness is. He only tells the story in order to illustrate that the man who thinks he's religious is actually not, and he's so irreligious, no matter what his training is, because he can't even see what's right in front of him. Embedded in the question, well, who is my neighbor? It's a spiritual orientation that ends up blinding the man to what should be obvious. You know why this parable is powerful? It's powerful because it shines a spotlight on the connection between true spirituality and proximity. In other words, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you've confessed your sins and you're putting your trust in Christ for your life and for your salvation, if you're, if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, and that means that that relationship with Jesus, it goes with you. I mean, you know, this, this is a, a wonderful Christian and a spiritual environment that we have together on Sunday morning. But you know this isn't, this isn't real life. It's good life. But what happens is you're deployed out into the world, and that's where your Christianity needs to go with you. And if it works in here, but it doesn't work out there, it doesn't work at all. And what Jesus is pressing in on is this perspective of you could know all the answers, you could know the questions, you could even say, here's the summary of the law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and your neighbor as yourself. And you'd answer the question exactly right. You know how to answer all the Sunday school questions. But if it doesn't work out there, the question is, do you really even understand the essence of what the gospel is? That's, that's the point. Stated positively, true righteousness is loving God and loving one's neighbor. And the effect of this is then the gospel then is brought into proximity with the people who are around us. So here's my question, what are the people that are in your proximity? Who are the proximity people in your life? It's interesting to me and a bit strange that proximity people are really easy to overlook. Again, we should never stop trying to reach unreached peoples, and we should never stop trying to serve underserved people, but let me just tell you that one of the things that's challenging about reaching unreached peoples who live on the other side of the world and underserved people who live in another section of the city than what you live is sometimes it's easy to give money 
Sometimes it's easy to have compassion and think you've done your duty. When the reality is we're supposed to walk right next door. The fact of the matter is sometimes we may know more about unreached peoples in um, Burma than we know the, na- the names of our neighbors who are just 60 feet away. Or the names of the guy or the challenges that he's dealing with in your marketplace or in your, in your work or in your school. And what's happening is in this fall season as we're approaching it, you're gonna be deployed out in the world and there's gonna be all kinds of people in your proximity. And my question is this, do you see them or are you and I more like the priest and the Levite? We're just so got tunnel vision that we don't really see the things that are right in front of us. Proximity people are challenging to reach. Do you know why? Because they're not predictable. And they're not far away. That's why, that's why sharing the gospel with family is, is challenging, isn't it? Because they keep coming back, right? And they, and, they, and they know your life. And so you share the gospel with them. They could say, oh, yeah, well, I remember when you were like 17, man. Like, like you, really? You're sharing this with me? And you got to own it. And like, yeah. And God saved me from that. And then you share the gospel and, and your kids still disobey and, and you, you, you still say things that you, you shouldn't and you gotta own it in front of them. And so sometimes it's, it, it feels like you're, you're, you're really putting that edge on with potentially being hypocritical because you go there with people who are in close proximity to you. People who are closer to you, they take t- more time, they, they, they bleed into your life, they ask questions and you can't avoid them. They see how you live And getting involved with them means more time, more energy, and more mess. And yet somewhere inside the heart of a Christian there is this really nagging question that sounds like this. You know, I moved into this neighborhood for a reason. God put me in this job. I'm in this class for something more than just calculus. Thank God, right? I'm in my new job, and there's new people in relationships. You see, God has a plan for you beyond your paycheck. And the tragedy is is that somehow we can tend to forget that. You know what the best plan for evangelism for our church is? It's not a, a program that we would create for you as pastors, not a training, although we need to do that and help you in that. Our best plan for evangelism is you, right where you live, in your workplace, in your school, right where you are, taking the gospel. You can reach people that I can't because you know them and because they're in your world. And so our greatest opportunity for evangelism is not Sunday morning. Now I'm encouraging you, invite people to come. Next week we start Live. It's a great opportunity for people to engage in a four-week series on what the ordinary Christian life is. Invite them but then realize that's not it. Our best strategy for evangelism is you reaching your neighbors. And you know why that's effective? Because they are your neighbors. There's some barriers to all of this. Why don't we embrace this mindset more fully? Let me give you, very quickly, seven things to think about as it relates to barriers. And as I put these down, um, I've prayed and I'm not saying these are things you need to work on. I'm saying these are things that we need to work on. Barrier number one, spiritual pride. Spiritual pride. It's possible to think you've done enough. 
You've done your duty, sort of the I gave at the office, I serve at the church sort of spiritual mindset. Hey, I serve in this area and this area and this area, and as a result, you begin to think, look, I've, I've, I've done what I need to do, and you begin to develop this mindset of the gospel doesn't necessarily have to go with me into these other areas. Spiritual pride. Number two, if we're honest, selfishness. While sometimes it might be hard to admit, the fact of the matter is that our lack of concern for the needs of people may simply be a matter of being too self-concerned. Focusing on my needs, on my life, and my agenda, and my plans. Spiritual pride, selfishness. Here's a third one, and it's just simply a lack of love. Some people don't reach out to others because they simply do not feel anything in their heart for them and they have developed a calloused heart. If that's where you're at today, can I just encourage you that the Lord knows that, that's no surprise to him, and you ought to take this story of the Good Samaritan and say, Lord, I, I see the priest and I see the Levite in me, and therefore I want you to change and soften my heart as it relates to the people in my, in close proximity to me. Would you help me as you just pray this week, say, Lord, would you give me eyesight to see the people around me and to feel something that I don't feel for them? Fourth, busyness. We live, friends, in a cultural Disneyland. I can't believe all the opportunities that exist within this community. I mean, it's really different than where I moved from. And there's nothing wrong with that inherently unless our lives are so full that we have no time to invest in people in our proximity, that we're so exhausted from running to this thing, to that thing, to this thing, to that thing, the reality is then we have no margin, and what happens is no margin dulls our proximity vision. We don't even see it because we can't, because we're so exhausted, or we're running from one thing to the next, to the next, to the next. Fifth, insecurity. Being a good neighbor means you have to step outside of your comfort zone, and the opportunities that will come with a proximity engagement can be intimidating as you engage with people who are different than you are. They may come from different cultures, different backgrounds, different religious beliefs. They may ask you a question that you don't know the answer to. And all those things may intimidate you so that you just are insecure and as a result, don't ever take any risk. And it can be really scary to do so. And maybe this morning you need to pray through, God, what do I do with this insecurity that I feel like? I, I can't have a conversation with somebody about the gospel. Number six, assumptions. One of the ways that we close our hearts to people is either assuming that we know how they're gonna respond or assuming that it's someone else's responsibility to help. Maybe you see somebody and you're like, that dude looks mean. I don't wanna share the gospel with a mean guy. Well, mean people need the gospel, right? So share the gospel and run. I mean, <laughs> just do it, he needs the gospel. We think it's someone else's responsibility. I don't know how to be able to do it. Or we think someone else would be better suited to be able to share the gospel with someone. And then finally, number seven, mission creep. It can be easy over time to forget why God has placed us on earth. I mean, I, I'm in full-time ministry, and I can forget why God's placed me on earth. 
running a large church, large staff, all the issues and challenges and opportunities that come with that. You can go day after day after day after day. And I know very well that the two people pointed out in the Good Samaritan parable are religious leaders. There's a reason for that. Because you can be so involved in the maintenance and the production and the movement of the ministry that you don't even see the people who are lost right next door. We can settle into a pattern where we're just living and surviving and working our jobs and hanging out with friends and raising kids and planning for retirement and we can just forget that Jesus gave us a mission and that mission sounds like go and make disciples of all nations. So does this look anything like your life? Any of these things, do they, they resonate with you? Do you see elements of either the lawyer asking Jesus, so who's my neighbor, qualifying it, or the priest or the scribe walking on the other side of the road? Has God providentially placed you in proximity to somebody that you've not embraced? My prayer, I'm gonna be praying this for you, is that as a church, in the next week, you have people who come into your path and you're like, proximity people. <laughs> Here they are, here's my opportunity. A major reason why we launched the campus in Fishers is to keep the mission of making disciples both personal and local and incarnational. It means this, that people where they live sharing the gospel, that's the essence of what our vision is. To mobilize our church, to see that where we live, where we work, where we travel, where we eat, where we go to school, where we work out, and a host of other areas of our lives are all little micro mission fields. And my question is, do you, do you see it that way? There are divine opportunities in front of us, and we gotta ask ourselves, why am I here? You gotta ask yourself, why are you part of the church in this moment, in this church's history? Why you, why here, why now, why this? And when we do this, it begins to become contagious. One of our staff guys texted me a picture this is of uh, Piper McColgan. Scott McColgan serves in our tech serve area. This is her first haircut. It's cute, isn't it? I wonder what in the world does it have to do with next door mission? Here's what it does have to do with that. He said, hey Mark, um, Piper had her first chance to share the gospel, first attempt at gospel sharing this week, and it went like this. She's sitting in the chair getting her haircut. She looks over to the next guy, little boy next to her who's getting his haircut, and she says to him, hey, do you know Goofy and Toodles? It's a TV program apparently. I had to search and figure it out. And the little boy said, yeah, and she said, Hey, do you know Jesus Christ? <laughs> I have no idea what the boy said, but I was like, yes! Yes! If a little girl can move from toodles and goofy to Jesus, look, so can you. The reality is, church, proximity equals opportunity and responsibility. And what I'm asking you to do is just to pray where has God placed you? Who are the people around you? What are the opportunities right in front of you? And let's not miss it. Let's not just be good neighbors. Let's be people who are on mission to go right next door with the gospel. Because you know what? That's why we're here. And you leave today to go out into the world to go do that today and next week. Because the mission is to make disciples of all peoples even people right next door. Let's pray together. As we bow our heads and close our eyes, I wanna give you a moment just to 
talk to the Lord about what he may be saying to you by the Holy Spirit today. I'll give you a moment just for some silent prayer as you search your heart about maybe one of those seven things that we identified and maybe there's others or maybe a person's face or their name comes to the forefront of your mind as we close. Maybe you ought to pray for them, maybe asking God to give you a love for them or to see opportunities that are in front of you. Maybe to ask the Lord to forgive you for um, a wrong perspective on things. And then in a moment, I'll uh, close in prayer. There'll be people up here afterwards as well who'd love to pray with you about anything uh, that's going on in your world. So let's just take a moment before the Lord. Father in heaven, forgive us for the ways that we miss what it is that you're calling us to do and to be. And thank you that there's enough grace in Christ that even our failures can be covered by his blood and we can begin again. We pray that you give us the kind of hearts that see the fields right in front of us. We would realize why you've placed this church and us as a people in this city and what our role is. You are the God of this city and there are things that you yet want to do and we want to be a part of them. So I pray for opportunities today with this group of people that you would create new conversations and new opportunities. Help us to embrace the responsibility in that and then also to see the beauty of new opportunities in front of us. Give us boldness, give us clarity, give us hearts that long for the name of Jesus to be exalted in people's lives. And Father, even today, would you draw people to yourself through the shed blood of Christ. Give us mercy, we pray as we try and engage people in our community and help us to see beyond just the things that we do or where you've placed us, help us to see the mission that you want us to be engaged in. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.